0: Hey this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, this is Antiwar News for Friday, March 31st, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of antiwar.com today. Milley says that the U.S. should attack Iran's Quds Force. So, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, told Congress on Wednesday that the U.S. should be targeting Iran's Quds Force, which is a branch of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, CIRGC. And he said this following a drone attack in Syria that killed a U.S. contractor. So, Milley said this at a hearing. In Congress, he said, quote, we do know that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and specifically their Quds Force, that group there is what we need to be targeting and targeting them very harshly over time. And that's exactly what we plan on doing, end quote. So it's a pretty uh, provocative statement there from Milley saying that they should attack Iranian forces directly. So the Pentagon said that the drone that hit a U.S. base in Syria last week was of Iranian origin, but they provided no evidence for the claim. President Biden ordered airstrikes against facilities that the Pentagon said were used by groups affiliated with the IRGC, IRGC, referring to Shia militias that operate in Syria. So according to Iranian media, Tehran is denying that the U.S. targeted facilities aligned with them and say that the airstrikes hit a rural development center and a grain center. And the Pentagon later claimed that the strikes targeted two IRGC Quds Force targets. So this was on Thursday. The Pentagon spokesman came out, and and that's how they described what they bombed now. So they are saying that they attacked Quds Force targets, although they said they didn't kill any Iranians, and they estimated that they killed at least eight militants in these airstrikes. But again, they said they weren't Iranian. And then there were other unconfirmed reports that put the death toll at 19. So if the U.S. does start targeting the Quds Force or the IRGC directly, you know, killing, uh, you know, uniformed Iranians, as Milley is suggesting, that could spark a full-blown war with Iran, of course. And the U.S. and Iran were brought to the brink of conflict in January 2020 when the Trump administration launched a drone strike in Baghdad that killed Qasem Soleimani, who was the Iranian general. And at the time, he was the commander of the Quds Force. So the U.S. occupation of Eastern Syria, of course, it always risks sparking a wider war as U.S. bases frequently come under attack. So now the Pentagon is saying, Since January 2021, there have been about 80 attacks on U.S. troops in Syria. That's a lot. And the Pentagon claims that these were all Iran-backed. And, you know, it doesn't make much sense because they say that they're in Syria to fight ISIS, but ISIS apparently isn't attacking them. Um, But the fact is they don't provide evidence for this assertion that Iran is, you know, directing these attacks. That's what they're implying here. Um, And many of the Shia militias do operate independently of Iran. Some of them do their own thing. Others are more aligned with Iran. But there have been times where Iran was trying to get them. This was more in Iraq, where the same militias operate there. Uh, Not all of them, but a lot of them operate in both Iraq and Syria. There were times when they were shooting rockets at U.S. bases because they were very mad because when the U.S. killed Soleimani, they also killed uh, al muhandas who was the leader of the Popular Mobilization Forces, which is an umbrella group of Shia militias, state-sponsored in Iraq that was formed in 2014 to fight ISIS. So the U.S. also killed that guy, who was their ally against ISIS just a few years before that. Um, so anyway, Iran has tried to get some of these groups not to fire rockets, but they still would. So we don't know. Uh, you know, Don't take the Pentagon's word for who they're saying is attacking them. And it's always worth pointing out there's other groups in Syria a lot of people would have a motive for the U S to leave Syria and ISIS would have a motive to, you know, stoke a conflict between the U S and Iran, you know, the U S and Iran, both fight ISIS. And if the U S and Iran are fighting that could give ISIS, you know, the opportunity um, to, to get away with doing more things, maybe building up more if, if, you know, the U S and Iran are focused on each other. Um, same thing, you know, Syrian, the Syrian government, Russia, the Kurds, Turkey, you know, they'll all fight ISIS if the US gets out of Syria. There's just no reason to be there. But yeah, this is this is uh concerning. And actually, you know, I, I made the headline Millie says that the US should attack the Kurds forces, but he actually says that they plan on on targeting them very harshly. So things could really escalate here between the US and Iran. I mean, who knows where this is going to lead. Very dangerous. Uh, All right, the next one here, the world court rules that the US illegally froze some Iranian assets. So the UN's top court on Thursday ruled that the US violated international law by freezing assets owned by Iranian companies. So this is the court of justice, the ICJ. It ordered Washington to pay compensation to Tehran, but the amount has not been determined. And then this court doesn't have a way of enforcing its rulings, similar to the ICC. Uh, Iran brought this case to the ICJ seeking to unlock $1.75 billion in frozen central bank funds. However, the court ruled that the central bank funds were outside of its jurisdiction. So Iran's foreign ministry said in a statement that the verdict shows the legitimacy of Iran's position because they said what the U.S. did with some of these assets was illegal. Uh, But since the court said it did not have the jurisdiction over the frozen funds, the U.S. also took this ruling as a victory. Uh, A State Department official said it was a major victory for the United States because the vast majority of Iran's case was related to the frozen central bank funds. So Iran brought the case to the ICJ in 2016 and said that by freezing assets to compensate victims of terror attacks that the U.S. claimed were linked to Iran, they're saying the U.S. violated a 1955 Treaty of Friendship known as the Treaty of Amity and this was signed following the 1953 CIA backed coup in Iran so when the US was friendly with the Iranian government the Trump administration withdrew from this treaty in 2018 but the court said that because you know this was in 2016 that Iran filed this so when the US was still technically a party to the treaty so the court said that they still violated its obligations under this treaty But the court ruled, according to this treaty, it only applies to commercial enterprises. So they're saying the central bank funds, which are, uh, I guess, owned by the Iranian state, that doesn't apply to this. Um, But, you know, the U.S. is all about uh, going after Russia when it comes to international tribunals, international courts. But I'm sure if this court orders the U.S. to pay Iran compensation, they're probably just not going to do it. Uh, All right, the next one here, Turkey's parliament okays Finland's NATO membership. So the Turkish parliament on Thursday unanimously ratified Finland's NATO membership, clearing the final final hurdle for Helsinki joining the Western Military Alliance. So Finland's entrance into NATO significantly expands the alliance's territory on Russia's border as the Finnish-Russian border is over 800 miles long. The Russian military has plans to expand its presence in the region in response to NATO expanding into Finland. So tensions in the region are bound to rise as a major major motive for Putin's decision to launch this war was NATO's post-Cold War expansion and its cooperation with Kiev following the 2014 US-backed coup that ousted former Ukrainian president Viktor Yanukovych. When the U.S. and Russia were negotiating before the invasion, Russia was asking the U.S. to roll back NATO. That was uh, the security guarantees that it was seeking, but the U.S. didn't seriously address uh, Russia's concerns. So Finland joining NATO could mean U.S. troops will be deployed to the country as the U.S. has beefed up its presence in the area that NATO calls its eastern flank. Since around the time Russia invaded Ukraine, there's a lot of U.S. troops in Poland and Romania a US spy plane recently flew over Finland near the Russian border for the first time at least in recent history and you know these flights could now become common turkey's approval came after almost 1 year of negotiations between Ankara and Helsinki sweden has been left in the cold as finland previously vowed to only join the alliance they said they would only do it with sweden but as soon as erdoğan said ah, maybe i'll just approve we'll just approve finland instead of sweden the Finnish officials said, Okay, that's you know, we won't hold you up if you want to do that. Um, and the Turkish vote came at a few days after Hungary's parliament approved Finland's NATO bid, and they're also delaying Sweden's membership over uh, they're saying the Swedish government, uh, that you know, they're not happy with them over criticisms of Viktor Orban's government. And when it comes to Turkey, you know, their big thing is the Kurds, they accused uh, mostly Sweden, that's why they didn't approve them of supporting the PKK and they want to extradite all these people from Sweden and Sweden hasn't been, I know their Supreme court blocked some of the extraditions, so they haven't been happy with Sweden, but there it is. Uh, NATO is expanding yet again on Russia's border, huge swath of Russia's border. Um, you know, it's just a sign that these tensions are not going to ease, you know, anytime soon. All right. All right. Next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. NATO holds war games miles from Ukraine's border. The U.S. and its NATO partners are conducting military drills in a region of Romania that borders Ukraine. Thousands of soldiers will gather to simulate repelling an invasion on the Black Sea coastline. The war games, dubbed Sea Shield 23, kick off on March 20th and will run until April 2nd. The U.S. and 11 other NATO countries are participating in the Romanian-led military exercises. Nearly 3,500 soldiers, 30 naval ships, 14 aircraft, and 15 other fast intervention boats are participating in the live-fire operations. The drills will occur in the Black Sea and Romania's Danube Delta. The SeaShield war games will come within 20 miles of the Ukrainian border. Um, So since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. has conducted war games in Eastern European countries to simulate to simulate war. They're simulating war with Russia in Ukraine and to develop strategies for Kiev. And Kyle points out that Seymour Hersh's report says that the Biden administration used the cover of NATO war games in June 2022 to plant explosives. These were in the Baltic Sea on the Nord Stream pipelines. So that has all sorts of implications for any of these drills. You know, maybe they're up to, you know, what else could they be up to while they're doing these drills? And these drills also come, you know, a few weeks after that American drone was downed near Crimea in the Black Sea. So it's definitely a sensitive area. All right. The next one here, uh, we left up the one from yesterday, Zelensky, saying that he might have to compromise with Russia if he loses Bakhmut. Uh, But the next one, Russia says that it will keep notifying the U.S. of missile tests. So Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov said Thursday that Russia will continue notifying the U.S. of its missile tests despite its suspension of New START, which is the last nuclear arms control treaty remaining between Washington and Moscow. So earlier this week, the U.S. said that it would stop sharing New START data with Russia since Moscow suspended its participation in the treaty. Robkov said Wednesday that Russia suspended information sharing under New START as well, but then he clarified on Thursday that Russia still plans to notify the U.S. of missile tests and to adhere to the caps on nuclear weapon deployments set by the New START treaty. Ryabkov said quote on a voluntary basis the Russian Federation will adhere to the central quantitative limits on strategic nuclear weapons set by the treaty and will also continue to abide by the 1998 sorry 1988 agreement on mutual notifications on missile launches end quote. So that was an agreement between the US and the Soviet Union. so new start limits the number of nuclear warheads that each side can have deployed at 1550. And it also puts caps on the deployment of intercontinental ballistic missiles, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and heavy bombers that are on nuclear missions. For now, both the U.S. and Russia have said that they intend to continue following the limitations on their nuclear deployments. So that's good. But Ryabkov and other Russian officials have previously said that the new start could be salvaged if the U.S. takes steps to de-escalate over Ukraine. De-escalate tensions. But the Biden administration, of course, has shown no interest in doing so, and they continue to ramp up support for Kiev. All right, uh, the next one here, Israel strikes Damascus for the second night in a row. So these Israeli airstrikes are really ramping up, it seems like. So Israel targeted the Syrian capital of Damascus early Friday morning for the second day in a row, marking the fifth time in March that Israel bombed Syria. Syria's state news ag- agency SANA reported that Syrian air defenses intercepted hostile targets in the airspace of Damascus. There was no mention yet of any casualties or damage caused by the strikes. Less than 24 hours earlier, the uh, at 1.30 a.m. on Thursday, and then these strikes were just after midnight, you know, early Friday morning in Syria. Um, but the Thursday strikes, you know, uh, The report said that two Syrian soldiers were wounded on those, and Israel has not commented on either strike, as they typically don't uh, take credit for individual airstrikes. So these intensified Israeli airstrikes in Syria, they come as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing a serious political crisis at home. After massive protests and dissent within his own government, Netanyahu delayed his controversial judicial overhaul, but the unrest... In the country continues. Uh, And I just had to mention again that earlier this month, you know, Israel bombed the Aleppo airport twice, bombed the airport of a city that was still reeling from this big earthquake, and they're still trying to rebuild from the war. And they bombed the airport. And, you know, the US just doesn't have anything to say about that. Uh, All right. The next one here. Taiwan and China must avoid war. And this is the former Taiwanese president, Ma. So former Taiwanese president, Ma Ying Zhao, told a Chinese official Thursday that Beijing and Taipei must do everything possible to avoid a war. He met with Sung Tao, who is the head of China's Taiwan affairs office. So this is a pretty significant meeting. You know, again, Ma is the first, sit, you know, former or sitting Taiwanese leader, to visit mainland China since 1949, and he here he is. He meets with the head of China's Taiwan Affairs Office. This is a big message for what the Kuomintang, Ma, you know, he he's not really a politician anymore, but he's still a member of the party. I think this is a big message to what this party is really going to run on in these upcoming elections in Taiwan. So Ma told Song, Quote, the two sides must maintain exchanges, cooperate together, and do everything possible to avoid war and conflict, end quote. So according to Xinhua, which is uh, Chinese media, Song said during the meeting that people in China and Taiwan should, quote, resolutely oppose Taiwan independence, separatist activities, and interference from external forces, and jointly safeguard the peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait, end quote. So Ma's bid to ease tensions across the Taiwan Strait, it comes ahead of another potential escalation as Taiwan's current president, Tsai Ing-wen, is expected to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in California on April 5th. So Taiwan is saying that it does not expect China to react as intensely to the Tsai McCarthy meeting as it did to former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, which sparked the largest ever exercises around Taiwan but China has made clear that it will respond in some sort of way they're issuing a lot of warnings and U.S. military forces in the Asia-Pacific are working under a heightened state of alert now they're preparing for a response according to the Washington Post so the White House has tried to portray Tsai's trip as a routine trip as there is precedent for Taiwanese leaders stopping in the U.S. again she's in she was actually in New York On Thursday, on her way to Guatemala and Belize. And then on the way back, she's going to stop in LA and looks like she's going to meet with McCarthy. Um, So again, the US is saying, oh, this is all standard. This, you know, nothing new here. But according to, again, this was the Washington Post. And I wasn't sure about this. I was trying to figure it out, but I couldn't. But now they're saying that this will mark, you know, if Psy meets with McCarthy. It would make McCarthy the highest level U.S. official to ever meet with the Taiwanese president on U.S. soil. So again, the U.S., this is kind of their line here is that they keep saying, oh, we're not changing our, our one China policy. That's all nonsense. Don't listen to China. This is all normal. But it's not. You know, these are new steps that the U.S. government is taking to show support for Taiwan. So we'll see how China responds. You know, they're trying to downplay it. Taiwan, what they're going to do. Uh, but they could. It could be just as big as when Pelosi went to Taiwan. We'll see. And both Ma and Tsai's travels, I think, preview the platforms that their respective parties will run on concerning mainland China in the upcoming 2024 presidential elections. Ma's Kuomintang party is going to likely run on reducing tensions with Beijing, while Tsai's Democratic Progressive Party will tout its stronger relations with Moscow. Tsai isn't running uh, her vice president, whose name I am blanking on, is going to be the candidate for twenty twenty four, and it's not clear yet who's going to be the Kuomintangs. There's other parties, other independent parties that that are doing good in polling. Uh, you know, it's not like they're, it's not like the U.S. where the, the third parties don't have a shot at all. Um, so, but it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. All right. The the last story here, this is good news, I think, and this is from The Intercept, and it says that, that there is a congressional effort to end Assange prosecution that is underway. So Representative Rashida Tlaib, the Democrat from Michigan, she is circulating a letter among her House colleagues that calls on the Department of Justice to drop charges against Julian Assange and end its efforts to extradite him from his detention in Belmarsh Prison in the United Kingdom the letter, a copy of which was obtained by the intercept is still in the signature gathering phase and has yet to be sent to attorney general Merrick Garland. Um, so they just go over here, you know, the background on the Assange case and basically the justice department has indicted Assange for doing journalism for publicize for publishing classified information. He's, he's the publisher. He's not the leaker. Uh, This is unprecedented, and this is using the Espionage Act, and they have a quote here from Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who's known for leaking the Pentagon Papers. Of course, Ellsberg said, quote, the Espionage Act, as it's written, has always been applicable to such a broad range of discussion of important matters, many of which have been wrongly kept secret for a long time, that it should be regarded as unconstitutional, end quote. So, If you want to go check out the letter, they have a copy of it here, and uh, it's very good. I'll just read the first paragraph. We write you today to call on you to uphold the First Amendment's protections for the freedom of the press by dropping the criminal charges against Australian publisher Julian Assange and withdrawing the American extradition request currently pending with the British government. And this is to Merrick Garland. And again, this case was opened by the Trump administration. Julian Assange was pulled out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London in in April 2019. So how many years is that now? It's 2023. You know, we're going on uh, five years. That's a long time uh, that he's been in Belmarsh prison. So uh, I think this is really important. And it's good to see that some, at least some members of Congress care. I'm not sure how many they're going to get on this letter. Right now, so far, they say, that Jamal Bowman, Ilhan Omar, Corey Bush have all signed. And Rokana has said that he has yet to see the letter, but added that he previously said his son should, should not be prosecuted. So he's he it sounds like he's gonna sign. And then Pramila Jayapel, she's not listed, but she's previously said that the charges should be dropped. And a spokesperson for AOC said that she intends to sign the letter, but Uh, so hopefully, you know, they get it. I know Thomas, I'm sure Thomas Massey would sign it. Hopefully they're going to try to, you know, talk to Republicans on this. Um, there might be a few more Republicans. I'm not sure. I can't, it's, you know, unfortunate when it comes to Assange, you know, the gravest threat to our, uh, freedom really, you know, if he is extradited and prosecuted, that's the, the, I mean, it's just going to set such a bad precedent. You know, you would think more people in Congress would at least talk about it, but, but yeah, I think this is a good sign. And they also mentioned that five of uh, the f- media outlets that have worked with WikiLeaks, the New York Times, The Guardian, El, El Pais, Monde, and Der Spiegel have published a joint statement, you know, calling on the U.S. to drop the charges, which, you know, was very late when, you know, but it, it was better, uh, better than nothing, you know, better late than never. So that's where that is at. Um. Maybe we should bug our representatives about it. Tell them to sign it. Uh, you know, not sh- so. We'll see. I'll look for updates on that. Uh, but that's it for the news. You could go check out our viewpoints. We have one from De- Derek Wheeler for Women's History Month. Celebrate the resolve of Jeanette Rankin, who was the first woman uh, in Congress who voted against, who was against U.S. entry into World War One. She was the one no vote against going to war with Japan in World War Two. Uh, one from Andrea Mazzarino, Former Soldiers Without a Future. One from Ben Armbrister over at Responsible Statecraft. 60 Minutes Hypes, The China Threat, Asks If the U.S. Navy Is Ready. One from Joseph Solis Mullen over at the Mises Institute, The Outbreak of World War I, A Libertarian Realist Rebuttal. And then our spotlight is Ted Snyder how the, the war in Ukraine has strengthened the multipolar world. That's over at the American conservative. Uh, but that's it. That's, that's it for the week. You can always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. I appreciate all, you know, the new listeners and viewers. It seems like, you know, I've been getting a lot more lately and that's awesome. So keep sharing it around. Tell people about the show. Uh, but I'll be back after the weekend. It was kind of a slow day. Now all the news is Trump indictment. <laughs> that's, I'm sure, going to take over, up most of the news cycle for this weekend. But I'll be back working and recording on Sunday night to get you uh, all the foreign policy news that you might have missed in the in, with all the Trump stuff going on. Uh, but that's it. I'll talk to you after the weekend. Thanks for listening.